Hello, 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 and welcome to the Sober Butterfly Podcast, episode 107. I am your host, Nidhi Movina, and this week I wanted to get personal with you guys. So I realized I should take a moment to share more about my personal why for sobriety and what actually led me here, because here I am asking all of my wonderful guests to be vulnerable and to bear their souls to the world, and I haven't quite done the same, if I'm being real. So now's my chance to fully introduce myself, all parts of me, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'm going to break today's episode into three parts. Part one is going to be all about my life before sobriety. Part two is going to be hitting that rock bottom. And for those who are not watching this on YouTube, if you're listening, I'm air quoting rock bottom because yeah, I had quite a few of those. And then part three is all about what happened when I actually got sober. A really quick life check-in. I'm still in Thailand, now in Phuket, and I'm feeling really good. So far, no real triggers or desire to drink or use any type of substance. I'm working on maintaining my semblance of a routine, which can be hard when you're traveling. I'm starting a Muay Thai training fitness camp next week. And a little part of me would be lying if I said that I wasn't hoping to maybe meet a really cute UFC fighter. And I'm, um, yeah, just really enjoying life here so far. Pinch me, this cannot be real. So before we jump into today's episode, I would like to dedicate this episode to my therapist. So if you're listening or watching, I have an amazing therapist. I really just want to thank you for all of the work that you've put in with me and for helping me get here. Also want to give a quick shout out to New Zealand, the country. Hey guys, thank you for watching and listening because I'm trending as number 38 in the mental health category in your country, which is really big for me. So thank you and for the show. So thank you so much for listening. And New Zealand is definitely on my list of places to come. Part one, life before sobriety. If I had to choose one word to describe my life before sobriety, I would have to choose the word chaos. Now, I like this word chaos because it signifies disorder and confusion. And that's exactly what I was experiencing. I definitely had a disorder, more than one, but the main disorder being alcohol use disorder. And I still struggle to place my drinking on a spectrum, you know, because at times it would be worse than others. It really just depended on the lens in which you were looking at it through. Some days I thought I had a better grip on things, and then other days I was completely powerless. Overall, I definitely had a problem with drinking. Then we have the confusion piece, and so my life was actually a paradox. Here I was promoting a healthy lifestyle through exercise and eating clean, yet I was binge drinking habitually and partying heavily. So throughout my drinking, there were signs of powerlessness, and to understand the powerlessness, I would like to define it as a lack of ability, influence, or power. So I know now that I was powerless over alcohol because I always wanted it. I couldn't get enough of it. And I missed it when it was gone. It was sort of like this all-consuming love affair, and it merged into my personality. So amongst my friends and family and close ones, I was always known as the life of the party, the wild child, the loose cannon, the party animal, basically the girl who was DTP, not DTF, although it depends on who you ask, DTP down to party. And I took pride in being that girl until I no longer wanted to be that girl. So now I just want to quickly break down 
my years of drinking because there are many years that I was drinking. But I first got drunk, and I do mean drunk drunk, at 13. Now, I don't remember this experience in great detail because I blacked out. Just some context, I was visiting my cousin who was in college at the time. And all I remember was I drank almost a full bottle of hypnotic. And I was never, ever able to drink that blue poison again. Then throughout high school, I didn't actually really drink that much. And my definition of not drinking that much was basically not drinking every day. I would drink on weekends um, at parties, for example, to seem cool around friends. But I actually remember never being the one that wanted to start the party by drinking. That wasn't really like my motive. I do remember actually another blackout time. So after being 13, that was my first blackout. And then a few years passed. But when I was a senior in high school, I had a friend, my best friend, who was a year older. So she was a freshman in college. And she's actually passed her rest in peace destiny. But um, she came back to visit for her spring break. And I remember we went to a party with some of her friends from college and we played like all these naughty drinking games. And I drank so much peach Bacardi that I ended up passed out in my own vomit in the bathtub. So that was also my very first drunk hookup. And I do remember that in high school being another time of blacking out. Now enter college. Now college, I can do an entire episode about what happened in college. But for now, you can just listen to episode 101, Drunk on the Hill with Faith Grant, where we sort of go into toxic drinking culture as it pertains to college. But college was definitely the height of my drinking. And I'm surprised that I survived drinking in such excessive quantities. College was the foundation in which I built my long lasting drinking career. And in truth, college was a bit fuzzy because I drank so much. As bad as my drinking habits were, they were most mostly accepted since I surrounded myself with people who also drank a lot, albeit I was probably the wildest in the group. I earned a reputation for being, you know, the wild card, which I leaned into. Mostly I had fun abusing alcohol and experimenting with other substances like molly, weed, and ecstasy. But this was also the first time in my life that I started to use alcohol to conceal how I really felt in my emotions. My sophomore year of college at age 19, I lost my father and I really didn't know how to cope with this. Um, this like gaping hole that I felt. Um, and at the time I felt like I was being a burden to my friends, a buzzkill. I was tired of people feeling sorry for me. At that time, I also flunked out of a sorority I was pledging for. I failed my very first class that semester. I crashed through my neighbor's glass table, almost puncturing a major artery in my hand and bleeding to death. I lost 50 pounds almost overnight. I dated an emotionally abusive guy that I helped make lean with to sell to frat boys at Florida State. Basically just painting a picture for you guys. I was really lost. Eventually I did get back on track, but I never really processed my father's passing and I learned negatively how to control my drunken outburst more and stop crying so loudly. There was this period of about three years later on in my 20s that I didn't shed a single tear which was concerning for me, but truly I believe that I cried so much for my father's death that I just had no more tears really left. After college, it was business as usual. I moved to New York for a program called Teach for America, where I worked as a full-time teacher and a part-time grad student. So on paper, everything looked great, okay? In reality, nothing could be further from the truth. So my first roommate in New York was sober. 
And she was also the first sober girl I had ever met in my life. It seemed like a very unlikely pairing, but we seemed to really hit it off. I'll change her name just for the sake of this podcast and consent, but let's call her Jamie. Jamie was free-spirited. She was fun. She had this gorgeous flowing long red hair. We'd go out to parties and clubs and events together, and she would always be the first person on the dance floor, which I really admired while I was waiting for my drink in line. Everything started off really well, but somewhere along the way in our two years of living together, there was this big shift. And I now, in retrospect, believe that alcohol played a role in that. She was one of the first people to tell me that she thought I had a drinking problem. I remember one day, distinctly I have this memory, where she was taking out the recycling from our kitchen and she was sort of like sifting through it. And I just hear like from the living room where I was sitting at the time, like clink, 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 like all the bottles clinking together. And then she poked her head around the corner and she was like, hey, girl, did you drink? And she's like holding up the bag of recyclables. She's like, did you drink all of this by yourself? I just felt like I was sucker, like sucker punched to the stomach. Like, ugh, I was exposed. I, I felt naked. And she then said something like, you know, I'm really worried about you, blah, 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 blah. I, I kind of tuned her out from there. And I definitely shut her out after that. I thought at the time she was just being super judgmental and a prude. And I knew more about her history. Like, for example, she grew up going to AA meetings because both of her parents are alcoholics. So I just thought that she was, you know, overthinking and being very sensitive to other people's drinking. And I dismissed her after that. I really didn't want to hang out with her again. And also I felt resentful because she never used to let me smoke weed in the apartment. I remember that. That was sort of like the end of our real friendship in that union of us living together. So post living with Jamie, I'm now in my like mid twenties and I meet my first ever boyfriend who we shall call Trevor. Now Trevor and I hit it off immediately after locking eyes at you guessed it, a bar <laughs> one night. And it's one of those love stories that goes, you know, boy meets girl, girl has to hide her drinking from boy. There's more to the story, of course, but I'm just focused on the drinking. So I remember Trevor thought it was cute. You know, those quirks in the beginning of a relationship when you meet someone, it's like, oh, that's so endearing. Um, so he thought it was cute anytime I bought wine over, especially in the first few like weeks of us dating. And he actually said to me one time, he was like, hey, like, you know, you don't have to bring a bottle of wine every time you come over here. You're coming over every day. And I was just like, oh, yeah. But in my head, I'm like, this is not for you. <laughs> you don't really drink wine like that. This is me. This is all me. Those two years of dating or being with Trevor was a little hazy, too, because I was pretty much self-medicated for the better part of that relationship. Instead of talking my feelings and expressing them with Trevor, I just decided it was easier to like smoke weed and get high and like drink instead of like talking to him. And even though I was self-medicating, I was almost always very composed. I never wanted to embarrass myself around him or especially his like very polished and distinguished friends. He was about seven years older than me. So I remember always being the youngest at a function and I just never wanted to embarrass him. I always remember that. And so even though it was unspoken, I felt like we had this dynamic where it was always compelling me to be on my best behavior. And I knew that it was over, actually, one of the first signs for me was when we got into our very first public drunken fight on New Year's Eve, 
while we were hosting for his friend and his friend's wife. And I broke in character. So that was the beginning of the end. Post-breakup, I dated a lot. I was about 27 at that time. So I dated a lot. I partied a lot. I even had a fling with a celebrity. I was always on the scene. I drank. I did coke. I drank more. And I was really trying to rediscover who I was after being so quiet and so small for those two years of that relationship. Then that sort of like brings us to the pandemic, which is March 2020, or as I like to call it, hitting rock bottom part two. Now, I'm not entirely sure that there is a rock bottom in the traditional sense for me. But if I had to reference a time or a place, I definitely go here. So starting March 2020, just throughout the pandemic, really, I was traveling a lot, which seems odd because it was, but I went from New York to Miami, from Miami to Atlanta, from Atlanta to LA, from LA to Tulum, and then finally kind of stayed in Mexico City for a while. I was looking for something or really someone. And now I know that when you're in search of someone, you're really looking for yourself. But at the time, I didn't know that. So instead, I literally went looking for this guy. I was looking for this guy I thought I was in love with. I think we should give him a name. And for some reason, Cooper is the first thing I think of. So let's just say Cooper. So I'm at Cooper in March of 2020 during COVID, of course. And we had this really short-lived situationship, I'll call it, because it wasn't a relationship. But it wasn't just a fling, as far as I'm concerned. And I just became obsessed with Cooper. And maybe it's because he ended things with me, which if I'm being honest, ego, like I wasn't used to that. Maybe it's because the world was closed and I was bored and had too much time on my hands. Maybe there is no logical explanation, but I literally followed this guy from Miami to Atlanta to Tulum, right? And so when we got to Tulum, I repeatedly saw him hooking up with other women, quite literally in front of me. And I felt sick. Like I literally snapped. I was going crazy. And I know that's dramatic, but that's truly what happened. And then the two weeks that I stayed in Tulum, it was just pure misery. And so just to give more context about Tulum, Tulum is not good for someone like me because in Tulum, there's no drug that you can't get. For example, you you go to the bathroom at a nice ass restaurant and instead of an attendant greeting you with like a towel to dry your hands, you're being greeted with a cartel member who's offering you quite literally Coke, Molly, weed. It was dangerous for me. And so... There was one moment right before I left Tulum, I'm sitting on the beach outside of Casa Marca, which is the former mansion of Pablo Escobar, go figure, and I'm drunk and high on coke and mushrooms, and I'm staring, quite literally staring up at the stars, and I guess even though I was high, so I don't want to call this quite a spiritual awakening, but I definitely had a conversation with God in that moment, and I was praying for an answer to something. I was just like, help me, I'm I'm dying inside, like I hate it here, and so the answer, it was a voice, I remember it was leave. So that's what I did. I left and I went to Mexico City because I believe in signs. And twice that week, someone had mentioned to me how amazing Mexico City was. So that's why I decided to go. I booked a flight literally on the beach high. And the next day I was on my way to Mexico City. And me going to Mexico City in hopes of escaping the party is quite laughable. CDMX, which is Mexico City, is literally where the party begins. (laughs) And at that time, I had a really great Spanish teacher that I met daily with, actually, for online Spanish lessons. 
And she was also confident in my life. And she was very concerned about my overall well-being during this time and was another person that suggested that I stop drinking. So I followed her advice. You know, I'm heartbroken. I don't know anyone at the time in Mexico City. So those few moments that I was there alone, I really tried to stop drinking and I lasted for maybe three days. And to be real with you, a big part of that is because I have food poisoning too. So it wasn't like fully, I don't know if that counts, but I did stop drinking for like two or three days, but it just couldn't, I couldn't stick with it. Um, Quite quickly, I met a group of friends in Mexico City. I stayed there for nine months. And so I, I met friends and I was partying as hard as college. And these friends were basically socialites. So they had access to all of these amazing parties And I just felt like I was transported to another time where you could smoke cigarettes inside and like do drugs openly and nobody really cared. It was a very different experience. I went there in the summer. By New Year's Eve, I started to check in with myself more. And I was like, yeah, this is not sustainable. Like you're acting as though you're 21 years old again and partying all the time and just doing things that are not safe. So I decided to go to therapy. And that was one of the best decisions that I've made. And I'm so proud of myself in that moment for making that decision because it changed my life. So therapy is interesting, but usually I find the reason that you go to therapy is not the reason that you stay. I set out to go to therapy because I wanted to work through some issues I had with obsessing over men and I wanted a quick fix solution to do so. Um, Basically, I was also like hashing out my daddy issues and trying to make healthier choices when assessing future partners. Within that first session, after her preliminary questions, right? Like she said to me, how would you define your relationship with alcohol? I was like, excuse me? (laughs) I'm like choking. I was hungover in that moment, actually. I'm like, um, I don't know. I'm like healthy. I think it's healthy, healthy. And of course I'm lying, but I'm like, there's no way she knows that she just met me. And so she goes, well, how do you know it's healthy? And I'm like, there's no point in lying to my therapist. Like I'm paying her. (laughs) I might as well just go there. So I'm just like, well, there's room for improvement. Um, I definitely drink more than the recommended allowance, but I don't think I'm abusing it. That that was my being honest, right? As honest as I could be in that moment. I can't really remember more about that session, but I do remember that question kept coming up with her. And she kept just saying, like, how would you describe your relationship with alcohol? And I'm thinking in my head, like, either you have the worst memory or you take terrible notes. <laughs> like, I don't understand why she keeps asking me this. Figured it out along the way that she was forcing me to sort of reflect and come to the consensus myself that maybe I did have an issue with alcohol. You know, I'm recalling details of a foggy alcohol-induced incident after the next. And then finally, I just confessed, okay, I think I have a problem. I think I have a problem with drinking. So I guess that's what you call a breakthrough in therapy. But what do you do with this new sense of knowledge or this new understanding And so in my mind, I thought that moderating was the answer. So I tried to do that for a while. I would, I would start with like a two drink maximum. I was like, yeah, okay. I'm only going to go out tonight and have two drinks. Of course that didn't work. So then I stretched it a little bit and I was like, okay, let me be more realistic. I will try three drinks and a shot, please. Please. So week after week, you know, someone is checking in with me, asking how it's going. And you know what? Sometimes I would actually stay within the parameters I'd set for myself. 
but, and there is a caveat, but the whole time I was miserable. So if I said a three drink maximum for a Tuesday night out at dinner with girlfriends, the whole time I'm like counting, I'm like counting my sips. I'm anticipating the next time the waiter will come around for me to order that next glass of wine. It was all consuming and exhausting, quite frankly. So I was not having a good time moderating with alcohol. That brings me kind of to the real rock bottom. So around the time I was getting ready to leave Mexico and I knew I was leaving, I was finding more excuses to go out. And one night I did MDMA pre-gaming at my apartment, chasing it with mezcal, straight mezcal, because I'm a G or I thought it was a G. And then I went to the club with a girlfriend. And so when we get to this club, all these people are there that I know. Um, and so everyone is visibly tripping on something. And I, of course, want to partake. So I'm blindly taking whatever powder that's being poured into my cup, sipping away. And then I go to like an after, after, after party. And then all of a sudden it's 5 p.m. the next day. No exaggeration here. So imagine you get to the club at midnight and you party, do not sleep continue drinking and, you know, doing drugs until 5 p.m. the next day. I don't even know, to be real, to this day what I was on, but I am assuming it was mostly uppers because I didn't sleep the whole night. So those, I don't know, 30 plus hours of partying, the come down, you know, the come down was unlike, unlike anything I had ever experienced in my life. And I just remember feeling so unloved, I'm so inadequate. And for the first time in my life, I thought that it was better just to not be here. Like, I just remember feeling like, what's the point? <laughs> like, I can't, I can't change. Like, what is the point? And if I, I don't even know where, there's, where those feelings stem from, but they were very real for me in that moment. And I hope to never feel that way again. Um and I would just like cry. I just felt so low and so loved. That's the best way I could describe it. And so I left Mexico shortly thereafter, but I continued drinking and, you know, trying to moderate and having these episodes of manic depression. And I'd be fine one minute, for example, and then I just burst into tears. And I think that's what my cousin was referring to on um, another episode. I think it was episode 104 when I just couldn't control or it was episode 103 I'm sorry I just couldn't control my outburst and so yeah I kept drinking I kept trying to moderate I kept failing I kept crying and I kept hurting it gets better so part three getting sober don't give up before the miracle can happen said by Fanny Flagg now this is my favorite part of the story the part where I break the chains and find my freedom so as you heard, you know, I'm trying to moderate my alcohol intake and I'm failing miserably. I'm still in therapy and I acknowledge I have a problem with alcohol. And I come to this realization that maybe I can't moderate and just need to stop altogether. When I say altogether, I didn't think I'd be here. <laughs> I just meant like, oh, I need to stop for a while. In the 12 years of heavy drinking, the longest I'd ever gone without drinking alcohol was one dry January in 2020. And even in that period, that month, I cheated twice for special occasions. So anyway, I resolved to stop drinking for a while. And I didn't give myself a timeline. I just said, you know, I was taking a break from the relationship with alcohol. I managed to stop drinking for, and this is summer 2021. So I managed to stop drinking for about two weeks 
before taking this trip I pre-planned to Atlantic City. Of all, of all places, I planned a trip to Atlantic City. So for my listeners who haven't heard of Atlantic City before, I'd like for you to picture Vegas on steroids, but also in a time capsule from the 1980s. Within an hour of arriving to Atlantic City, I was drinking. And as I bounced around from casino to casino, my friend and I actually met these women outside of one of the casinos and I asked them to bum a cigarette. And as she went to graciously, you know, give me a cigarette, I'm looking at her arm and she just has track marks up and down her arm. And I made a comment to my friend later on, of course, not in front of them, but I was just like, you know, something like, oh, those poor women or something like that, like, you know, in my high state. And so my friend replies, it's all a matter of convenience. And I I really didn't understand what she meant by that. I'm like, it's all a matter of convenience. What does that mean? And she's like, well, you know, we grew up in spaces where alcohol and Molly and maybe Coke was like convenient. These women may be from a place where, you know, they have access to other drugs. And, you know, you want to talk about blowing someone's high. (laughs) I was like, damn, that really struck me. Like here I am feeling sorry slash feeling better in a way, if I'm being real, like for this woman when I should be looking at myself and not judging her for her drug of choice. I felt like just disgusted by myself. And the very next day, July 5th, 2021, I got sober and I stayed sober. (sighs) What a a ride. I will definitely pick up from here in another episode to share how my first year of sobriety went. But I really hope you enjoyed hearing a little bit more about my background with alcohol and drugs. If you relate to my story in any way, or if you have questions, or if you just want to connect, please reach out. You can follow me on social media at The Sober Butterfly, or you can email me hello at thesoberbutterfly.com. I love you guys so much. Thank you for listening. And just a reminder, new episodes drop every Tuesday. Besitos. Bye.